of things to talk about. Joe Biden has decided not to run for president. Jim Webb has suspended his campaign for president. But we're going to start the program this evening with the tragic and, in my judgment, unnecessary murder of a New York City police officer, Randolph Holder. Uh, He died in East Harlem, and he died doing his job. He was a Guyanese immigrant. His apparently his father and his grandfather were both police officers in Guyana. He was the kind of police, they say, he was an exemplary police officer. And when we talk about policing in New York City, and Lord knows, you know, people will criticize the police, but that criticism ought to be tempered by the notion that police officers, and this was the case in Randolph Holder's situation, they run toward danger, not, from, not away from it, number one. And number two, apparently, according to the published reports that I've seen, his murder was, uh, I guess, the culmination of a gunfight that was taking place over turf in East Harlem. The public housing along uh, First Avenue and the FDR Drive in East Harlem. Well, understand that, and they found apparently shell casings, and they also found a, a magazine uh, full of bullets from a semi-automatic weapon in the, in the Harlem River after all this took place. Understand very clearly that if rival drug gangs or one of their number would shoot and kill a New York City police officer, they won't think twice about shooting and killing a private citizen. Now, it didn't happen, thank God, in this case. But when we talk about what police do, understand very clearly that part of what they do is keep us safe. And Randolph Holder gave his life, gave his life, so that others might be kept safe. Now, they have the guy in custody, the alleged shooter, Tyrone Howard. He was... uh, apparently on the run at the time this incident took place. Not on the run from the gunfire that had taken place earlier, but he had been on the run from police, apparently, for weeks. He had dropped out of a court-ordered or court-mandated, not even, yeah, court-ordered, same difference, drug treatment program. And the police also suspect that he played a role in a shooting last month. Now, I, you know, a lot of people look at this from a lot of different angles. Some people will criticize Black Lives Matter over this kind of situation, which, of course, is nonsense. But the larger question for me is, because they say that there were at least three 
weapons plus Tyrone Howard's, allegedly, that were used to exchange gunfire between these two crews, who apparently were fighting over turf from which they would sell drugs. And apparently they have a lucrative drug trade going on in the public housing that skirts the East River in East Harlem in Upper Manhattan. Well, my first question, my God, I've, I've asked this a number of different times in a number of different cases where people have been shot and killed. Where do the guns come from? Now, they haven't recovered the weapon that Tyrone Howard, the alleged shooter, used to kill Randolph Holder. That they do not know yet. They don't have the weapon. But once they get the weapon, and, you know, I would say, and, and this is just me, this kind of incident should, in my judgment, trigger a widespread search through that public housing. Because it sounds, you know, and again, you know, sometimes the media overhypes this sort of thing, but it sounds to me as though there's an element of lawlessness that puts the lives of innocent public housing residents in jeopardy. Well, if that's the case, how about people go through there, talk to the innocent law-abiding citizens, and find out who the dealers are, and take their guns away? I know people don't like stop and frisk, et cetera, et cetera, and I'm not saying you just target anybody. But the people who live in public housing know who the criminals are. They know. Maybe they're related to some of them. Maybe not. But they know who the criminals are. Now, many of them fear retribution, and that's legitimate. But we have a police force here that should be able to protect innocent citizens from retribution if they speak out and start naming the criminals in their own community because those criminals will cut down innocent men, women, and, yes, children because this is about money. And the second part of this, and this ties into a a story that we did last week, a judge out in Wisconsin said, or maybe it was a jury, I can't remember which, that a gun company that sold through straw purchases a gun that was later used to kill. No, they weren't. It didn't kill. The two police officers were shot. Thank God they lived. Well, maybe, just maybe, that kind of sanction, now apparently nobody's going to jail, but they were held liable to the tune of about $5 million. Well, maybe they should start looking at who sold these criminals, these guns, and whether or not back at the very beginning of the gun sale, it was done through straw purchases. And if so, go after the gun dealers. I know some gun dealers don't like to hear that, but go after the gun dealers. Make it more difficult to put guns in the hands of criminals. We got a, we got a, a police department of 32,000 people. They can do this. Bill Bratton can do this. Because a police officer's life today and an innocent citizen's life tomorrow. See, right now, because of what's going on, because there's an investigation that's ongoing up there in East Harlem, those drug gangs are going to lie low for a while. One of them's called East Army something or another. I don't care what they're called. 
They're criminals, they're punks, and they ought to be locked up. Apparently, two crews got into a, a beef in front of a parking garage on 102nd Street over by First Avenue, between First and, F- and the FDR. According to the New York Times, the situation escalated. There was evidence that the crews blasted away each other at each other from across the street. This ain't the wild, wild west. What in the world? People shooting it out with each other from across the street. Calls came to 911, apparently in large number. Officer Randolph Holder and his partner, Officer uh, Omar Wallace, another hero, by the way, were among a number of police officers who converged on the scene. The suspects fled in two different directions. One took off on foot down First Avenue. Others had run across the highway and down by the East River. One witness told the police that his bicycle had been stolen at 106th Street and the promenade, which runs over the FDR, by a man with a gun. Call went out. Two police units converged on the promenade, one moving north from 96th Street. The other unit was moving south from 120th Street. Officer Holder came over across the footpath. He found the man on the bicycle, and the guy on the bicycle got off the bike, turned around, and shot Randolph Holder in the forehead, killing him. Police officials uh, officials said, quote, it was quick. He swung around on the bike path. He was on the bike, and he just jumped off, and boom, quick. No words. It was quick. Randolph Holder was declared dead at Harlem Hospital at 10.22 last night. This is something that has to change. This is something that has to end. Now, Officer Omar Wallace returned fire. He hit Tyrone Howard in the leg and buttocks. He was apprehended near 124th Street and returned to police custody after being released from New York Presbyterian Wild Cornell Medical Center. He has a history of drug arrests primarily for narcotics sales. He served two terms in New York State Prison for drug sales. His most recent release came in April of last year. And the guy was selling in the East River houses and the surrounding area, including playgrounds, a basketball court, stairwells, lobbies, hallways, and elevators. In addition to the charges of selling cocaine, one of the defendants was charged with the unlawful sale of heroin. This kind of turf battle cannot be allowed to exist. These folks need to be rounded up and locked up. And the people that are involved in selling, not people necessarily that were involved in the killing of Randolph Holder, but people who are involved in that level of drug sales need to be taken off the street. Turf battles. Come on. We are a civilized city. But in certain parts of New York, in certain parts of Manhattan, we're not. Collectively, we're not. Where are the people who are relatives and parents and grandparents of the people who were out in the street shooting it out? Where are their families? What do their families think about the fact that they're involved in heroin and cocaine sales and that they will defend their turf at the point of a gun? And, uh, you know, let's be real. 
This isn't new. This has happened many, many times in the past in different parts of the city, in East New York, in Brownsville, Brooklyn, out in Queens, South Jamaica, out, up in the South Bronx. It's happened before. Sex money murder comes immediately to mind, that crew. And the common thread with all of these crews is that they terrorize law-abiding people. People scared to come out of their houses. People scared to walk down the street. People scared to walk through a crowd of people on the off chance that somebody will pull a gun, start shooting, and they, the innocent person walking down the street, will be the one that gets shot. That's what we're facing. And we have to kind of face it with some level of resolve here. But as we do that, and as the people involved in this particular situation are brought to justice, we also need to realize that it is too easy for criminals to procure firearms. I don't know if it comes up the iron pipeline from down south someplace, Virginia, South Carolina, Georgia, wherever it is to e- where you can easily purchase firearms and transfer them up here and then sell them on the street. Whatever it is, it has got to stop. In the name of Randolph Holder and others who have been killed, what is it, four, I think, so far this year? Wenjin Liu, Rafael Ramos, Brian Moore. In all their names, we need to stop this. And in the names of innumerable innocent people who have been shot and killed in this city, not just this year, but in the past as well. We need to get a handle on this. Now, this is not a Second Amendment issue. You know, the, the, the pro-Second Amendment people scream and holler about, you know, the criminals are the ones that will have guns if we control everybody else. Well, no, control the criminals. Whatever it is you need to do, control the criminals. Now, at the same time, this story has saddened the entire city of New York and beyond. More than 100 police chiefs, prosecutors, and sheriffs are adding their clout to the movement to reduce the nation's incarceration rate. This is fascinating to me. These police officials, prosecutors, DAs, sheriffs, say, quote, too many people are behind bars that don't belong there. And, of course, in the case of the killer of Randolph Holder, there are probably too many people who deserve to be behind bars, who belong behind bars, who are not behind bars. Because apparently this guy was in a some kind of a diversion program, which he ceased to attend. But officials planned, actually they announced today, that they formed a group to push for alternative alternatives to arrests, reducing the number of criminal laws, and ending mandatory minimum prison sentences. They're going to be meeting Thursday, tomorrow, with President Obama. This group includes police chiefs of the nation's largest city, including William Bratton of New York, Charlie Beck of Los Angeles, and Gary McCarthy of Chicago, as well as prosecutors, including Cy Vance, the Manhattan DA. This appears to have some bipartisan steam. 
And if you want to talk about the effects of Black Lives Matter, you can look at this. Alternatives to mass incarceration. One of the things that Black Lives Matter has made a foundation of its organization and the outreach that they've conducted has been to focus on mass mass incarceration. The group is called Law Enforcement Leaders to Reduce Crime and Incarceration. Now, a lot of these guys, mostly guys, I assume, not all, but a lot of these folks have made their careers being tough on crime. Lock them up, throw away the key. This is a very interesting turn of events. These folks now say reducing incarceration will improve public safety because people who need treatment for drug and alcohol problems or, and I can't say this loudly enough, mental health issues will be more likely to improve and reintegrate into society if they receive consistent care, which not a lot of jails and not a lot of prisons are currently offering. So this is fascinating. I don't know if there's going to be any pushback in the wake of the killing of Randolph Holder. Because the guy who allegedly did it was in the system, did time, and came back out. But they're talking about low-level, and I do mean low-level criminals, not violent felons, not people who engage in turf battles over drugs, but people who might get arrested for simple possession of small amounts of drugs, minor crimes. And, you know, the policies, these these get-tough-on-crime policies have always disproportionately affected African-American men. A 2013 study, I'm reading from the New York Times now, by the Sentencing Project found that police strategies that target black men and judges harsher sentences for minorities mean that one in three African-Americans born that year, that would be just two years ago, could expect to spend time in prison compared to one in 17 white men. That's deep. It's something to contemplate. How it's going to work, in fact... See, because any relaxation in law enforcement invariably brings pushback from people who may have some skin in the game, although a lot of these police chiefs are the, the very people who would normally and who have traditionally had skin in the game. Their departments benefited financially, at least in terms of allocations, from the perception that crime was out of control. And now they're saying, whoops, we arrested too many people wrongly. Shoplifting and that sort of thing. Now, a little later on, we'll talk about a situation where at least one town in one state in this country has created a debtor's prison around people who get get arrested for these kinds of low-level crimes, traffic citations, that sort of thing. And their inability to pay means they end up sitting in jail for long periods of time. And, of course, many of you may remember the name Khalif Browder. 
The young man who did three years, three years on Rikers Island without trial. Finally released because they couldn't find the guy who would initially accuse him, I think, of stealing his backpack. And then a year or so later, the kid hung himself. These are the kinds of situations that people ought well want to avoid. Just like you want to avoid gunfights in public housing, you want to avoid locking people up for alleged low-level crimes because they can't make bail. And that's a big reason why a lot of people end up in jail in this and other places across the country. And, of course, you know, you can't build prisons fast enough to lock up everybody. So it's going to be a very, very interesting situation to watch. And we will follow it. And we'll bring any information we have to you. Syrian President Bashar al-Assad, changing gears ever so slightly, Bashar al-Assad made an unannounced trip to Moscow to meet with President Vladimir Putin of Russia. And, of course, they discussed their joint military campaign and a political transition in Syria. Now, this is an interesting multi-sided situation. Okay, Putin and Assad say that the military offensives that they have jointly conducted are aimed at wiping out terrorists, Islamic State, Al-Qaeda, you name the group, that's who these two say that these offensives are aimed at. The United States, on the other hand, has a long-standing commitment to getting rid of Assad on the one hand and has, has alleged that a number of these offensive military actions have actually targeted groups who simply want to get rid of Assad, which I guess the United States don't, doesn't consider them terrorists. Putin, I hate to say this, but Putin has the upper hand in this. Because Putin and Assad, and Assad, by the way, long before anybody knew who ISIS was and long before al-Qaeda established any beachheads in Syria, Assad was saying that his opposition were terrorists. And now he's got Putin backing him up on this. Apparently, now mind you, This conflict in Syria has gone on for better than four years. And the Russians are saying that not only are they committed to a military response to terrorism in assisting the Syrians and assisting Assad, but also to a political settlement. Now, I don't know, and I doubt seriously, that that political uh, settlement would involve the ouster of Bashar al-Assad. According to the New York Times, and, and please bear with me, I didn't get all my source information for tonight's show from the New York Times, but this is apparently Bashar al-Assad's first trip outside Syria since the Civil War started in 2011, four years ago. 
And Putin, according to remarks released by the Kremlin, told Assad that the military and political issues were linked. Quote from Vladimir Putin, On the question of a settlement in Syria, our position is that positive results in military operations will lay the basis for then working out a long-term settlement based on uh, political process that involves all political forces, ethnic, and religious groups. Ultimately, it is the Syrian people alone who must have the deciding voice here. And the United States has long held and aggressively advocated for a political solution and political transition that doesn't include Bashar al-Assad. I'm not at all sure that Assad is down, okay? And when Putin talks about a long-term settlement, I don't know that he's talking about the ouster of Assad. My gut tells me probably not. And Assad says... The threat from terrorism is a real obstacle to any political settlement. Now, the United States might argue, well, he's hiding behind the terror threat to maintain his iron grip on the Syrian people. Remember, it wasn't that long ago the United States was accusing Assad of using gas on his own citizens. You remember that? Doesn't get talked about much now, that's for sure. Uh... The Russians are supporting Syria both with money, weapons, and on the ground. Now, Turkey, who's one of the countries that has some skin in the game besides the Russians and us, and they have been very critical of Assad, said it would accept his staying in office for the first six months of a political transition. Although the Turkish prime minister said that Turkey's insistent that Assad has to go, had not changed. The United States, of course, has no interest in Assad being involved in any political transition. But, again, I hate to say this, Putin's got the upper hand here. Putin has acted, and that's not to say that Obama should have acted, but Putin has acted and thereby seize the initiative. Meaning, in short, and this is just my own opinion of what I see and what I read, that Putin ain't going nowhere unless, I mean, sorry, Assad is going nowhere unless Putin says so. Now, sooner or later, like all world leaders, Assad is going to have to go. But what it does is make Russia a major player in the Middle East. Not everybody's going to be happy about it. I'm sure the Israelis aren't jumping for joy at all this. But Putin has now grabbed the initiative. And to be honest with you, there's not a whole heck of a lot Obama can do about it. What is he going to say? We condemn the meeting? No, you can't say that. You can't. It doesn't work. Now, the Russians aren't real happy that the United States has been cool to Russia's intervention here, mainly because the Russians say, well, you want to get rid of Islamic State, don't you? 
Don't you want to cripple this terror threat that's jeopardizing the entire Middle East? Well, how come you're not down with our program? And there's speculation that this meeting might put pressure on the Obama administration to engage. Engage what? I don't know. See, because if the cost of U.S. engagement is Putin, uh, Putin, I keep saying Putin, Assad has to go next week, it's not happening. Remember that a cornerstone of U.S. policy towards Syria, going back four years now, has been Assad must go. He's got to be out. Now, several things have taken place that have, I think, weakened that position, not the least of which is the simple fact that when regime change has been implemented at the behest or at the point of a gun from the United States, Libya, Iraq, other these places have not really fared that well. They, just, they haven't. Libya? Libya is in chaos. Iraq? You know, U.S. troops get all the way out of there. There's a problem in Iraq. And you know, the, the United States intervention hasn't worked that well. The United States is also, I believe, not anywhere near ready, not anywhere near ready to intervene in Syria. The United States ain't putting troops on the ground. Now, the United States could, in theory, give the Syrian opposition more money for weapons. But then you got the same three-sided situation. You got Islamic State, and Lord knows where they're getting their money from. Months ago, months ago, I said the United States ought to make as a first order of business defund. You want to do it later for defunding Planned Parenthood? Defund ISIS. De- defund Islamic State. Defund Al Qaeda. They're getting their money from someplace. Somebody brought up the issue the other day about you know the brand new Toyotas these guys are running around in. Well, where do they get the money to buy them? They're not being given away for free, certainly not by the Japanese, and probably not by anybody else. Somebody's getting money to these folks. But the last thing the United States, in my judgment, needs to have happen is a three-sided conflict. It's not going to work. It is not going to work. Putin is a, he's not anything else, he's a skilled card player. Okay. Uh, And, you know, Putin says that there have been about 4,000 people from Russia and the former Soviet republics who've gone to Syria to fight for Islamic State. This is a win-win for him. It really is. It's going to be interesting to see how it plays out. It's 29 minutes before the hour of 7 o'clock. i got a bunch of other stories, and I want to get to all of them. Forgive me for my long-windedness about the uh, some of the issues that we've covered in the first half hour. Uh, you can call us at 888-874-4888, 888-874-4888. We're going to take a quick break. And come right back. Talk about Paul Ryan. Talk about Republican voters, the uh, base Republican voters, and their anger at politicians. A new prime minister in Canada. And the story I mentioned earlier, how a town in Mississippi has recreated debtors' prisons. This is the Mark Riley Show. 
on the Progressive Radio Network. Twenty-seven minutes before the hour of seven o'clock. This is the Mark Riley Show. I am he. This is the Progressive Radio Network, and we're glad for each and every person who is listening to us this evening. I'm very, very much grateful. There was a story that kind of caught my attention uh, when I was putting together the show for tonight. I thought, like, I, I didn't want to go overboard on Republican-oriented stories, but the Republicans are fascinating. I got to tell you, they are absolutely fascinating. Because they're involved in a circular firing squad uh, of epic, and I do mean epic, proportions. Well, Republican primary voters are angry and upset. And they're upset at the poli- what they consider to be the political class, both Democrats and Republicans, which is the source of much grief among Republicans. They don't like incumbents. They don't like people who've been in politics for extended periods of time. Now, what I find fascinating about this is that they somehow think these people, these folks, because they were uh, uh, they were subject of a focus group um, by Peter D. Hart. And what I find amazing about this is that they think the politicians they do support will somehow not become part of the political class, the same political class that they claim to despise. And if you look at what's going on with Republicans in the House of Representatives and their apparent inability to pick a speaker and why 40 people who formed the Freedom Caucus within the House of Representatives suddenly wields so much clout, you realize they're not doing this And then when they're finished, leave and go home. They're not. They're going to become career politicians just like everybody else. And that's because politicians, whether liberal, conservative, progressive, however you want to describe them, they are drawn to power like moths to a flame. They love it. It's important. It's what they do this job for. Some of them may come to Washington with, you know, well, we're going to shrink government or we're going to do this and that and the other. But when they realize where the power is, they want it. And I find it absolutely amazing that all these focus group people, Republican voters, don't understand that. They seem not to understand it. I mean, they like Donald Trump, they like Ben Carson, they like Carly Fiorina, largely because 
They don't come from the political class. But that's that's the election for president. If all they care about is who's the president, then fine. But they're going to find very quickly that the inability of, a house, of, of even Republicans in the House, and remember, they have a majority, the inability of Republicans in the House to get their act together is going to come, by, come back to bite them in the keister. And these same people, and by the way, while we're on the subject, is there ever a time that the right wing, the Republican base, isn't angry about something? They're always mad. They're never satisfied. I guess maybe they'd be satisfied if we eliminate the minimum, uh, minimum wage, get rid of Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, whatever else. That seems to be their end game: abortion. Get rid of all of that, maybe they'll be happy. Otherwise, they're always pissed off. And that is part of the sadness about the circular firing squad we see in the Republican Party. We're going to talk about another element of that. But first, my good friend Harriet from Bayside, Queens is on the line. Hey, Harriet, how you doing? I'm okay. How are you? Doing great. Um, I want to talk about uh, the fact, first of all, Biden isn't going to run. And between you, me, and the lamppost, I'm glad. Now, I think I said a while back, Harriet, that I didn't think he was going to run. Yeah, but he, like, kept us guessing. Yeah, he did. But, I mean, look, he's 72 years old. He's one of those career politicians. I guess maybe he's entitled, huh? (laughs) Well, sure. And uh, remember, Bernie Sanders is 74. I know. And, and, you know, uh, almost... And my candidate is 68. Almost unnoticed in the presidential sweepstakes. In fact, that Jim Webb left. <laughs> Nobody yes. seems to know. Jim so, Webb quit. Um, and he, when I watched the debate, I thought he belonged in uh, the Republican debate. Really. He's always been what has euphemistically been called a centrist Democrat. Yeah. And uh, to me, Lincoln Chafee mm-hmm. doesn't belong there. Just, he's a nice guy, but he's not presidential at all. But now, Harriet, here's the thing. Does anybody really know Lincoln Chafee's running? Of, of the um, people who are left, he's got the least name recognition of all of them. All right, I know him, okay? I, know, but, I mean, I remember his know father. He is by more people than Lincoln Chafee. Well, I mean, I remember his father. Okay, the state of Rhode Island knows him. Yeah, exactly. The smallest state in the Union. <laughs> yeah. All right. So, like I said, the state of Rhode Island knows him. Now, do you but, think um, that Hillary's chances are increased because Biden decided not to run? Yes. I also think that tomorrow, you know, she has to go back to the Benghazi committee. How many more Benghazi committees will there be? Well, you know, the the Benghazi committee has so discredited themselves, I'm startled she's even going. (laughs) Oh, no, she's going to go. Hopefully she'll make fools of them all. Well, she's got the smarts to do that. Yeah, and I think she's got the smarts to be president. Oh, I, I've never doubted she's got the smarts to be president. Absolutely. Yeah, my and thing is, I just really like Bernie. I don't dislike Hillary Clinton. I just really like Bernie Sanders. Well, you see, 
I don't dislike Bernie Sanders, but I like Hillary Clinton more. And he's 74 years old. He, That's okay. I, well, Francis is 78, ain't he? I thought he, they said he was 74. 78 is old. No, no, uh, Bernie's 74, but Pope Francis is 78. Yeah, well, that's Pope Francis. <laughs> I that's knew you'd Pope say Francis. that. That's Pope Francis. Huh? I knew you'd say that. I that's mean, look, I, as I get older in years, Harriet, yeah. um, age is yeah. not as daunting a thing as I used to think it was. You know what I mean? Yeah, but you're still a kid. Who? Not me. Yes, you <laughs> are. Me. What are you, a girl, uh, even more than 10 years younger than I am? I'm 64. Well, I'm 75. Oh, so 11 years. Not that much. And now you force me to give away my age on the radio, Harriet. But so I mean, look, it, for me, it's like, what kind of energy do you have? What kind of right guts now, do you have? Right now, this moment, I have no energy at all. <laughs> you have the energy well, to you know, do that. You, you bring up another question, and that yeah. is, are these candidates, with the exception of Martin O'Malley, who's not as old as the rest of them, are they all too old? Uh, Hillary isn't, and I want Hillary to pick Martin O'Malley as her vice president. Not, not Bernie? No, because she needs a young vice president. Why? Well, she's not that young. I know, but, but, I mean, vice presidents don't do anything unless something really bad happens to the president. Uh, yeah. Are you yeah. worried something bad's going to happen to Hillary? I'm bad something, I'm uh, worried something bad is going to happen to anyone in the presidency. It's happened too many times in my lifetime. Well, yeah, I mean, uh, you're right. There is always that possibility. But I don't know that any presidential nominee chooses their running mate based on something bad happening to them. John McCain sure didn't. Of course, he didn't win either. But he didn't, he didn't, he didn't. Sarah Palin, he didn't pick on account of he was scared something was going to happen to him. John McCain was forced to pick her. He wanted to pick someone far more centrist. He wanted um, Jay Bailey Hutchinson from Texas. He wanted Lieberman. He wa he sort of wanted Lieberman, but he wanted a woman. He wanted Kay Bailey Hutchinson. Trust me. Well, if you Didn't say, happen, obviously, but uh, if, I mean, look, um, I understand you being more enthusiastic about Hillary than you are about Bernie. I happen to be a little bit different in my thinking. I know uh, I've that. Talked to Bernie. I've, I've interviewed Hillary before. I just yeah. really, really, I, to me, it's an embarrassment of riches. It's not something I have to say, well, okay, Hillary, she's not, you know, I, I don't do that. Remember, in 2008, I wanted Hillary, too. I know. I know. And, I mean, at this time, or not at all for Hillary. I mean, if she doesn't get it this time. I mean, it, yeah. And the thing is, she's eminently qualified, she knows her stuff, and she'd be a very, very, very good president. President, yeah. Harry, got to run, but thank you so much for calling. Okay. You take okay, care. Bye Have bye. a good one, huh? You too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. You know, the, the whole question of presidential qualifications is a fascinating one. Uh, you know, I, among some of the Republicans, it's almost like 
your qualifications are based on how many times you can invoke the Holocaust. Just ask Ben Carson as one example. But uh, moving on, I do want to talk about Paul Ryan. Because Paul Ryan says he might consider becoming Speaker of the House, but in order for him to be Speaker of the House, the Republicans are going to have to submit to a list of demands. And the Republicans that he's talking about, who will have to submit to this, this list of demands, includes the 40-member Freedom Caucus, who suddenly think that they run the Congress. Fascinating group of people. Now, the Freedom Caucus themselves has been demanding the potential candidates for speaker make a detailed set of substantive commitments in exchange for their support. That's what submarine Kevin McCarthy. Uh, it's interesting. Very interesting. Now, here, here's what the Freedom Caucus wants. So we're clear here about who these people are and what their agenda is. They want the next speaker to refuse to raise the debt ceiling unless it's tied to cuts in Social Security, Medicare, and Medicaid. Deal breaker for the Democrats. On the other hand, Paul Ryan has his own list of demands. He refuses to agree on anything in advance of being elected speaker. He will not pre-commit to anything that the Freedom Caucus wants. He wants the Freedom Caucus to publicly endorse him for speaker, even though he's giving them nothing. This would, by the way, require four-fifths of the Freedom Caucus to support him. Third, he wants the Freedom Caucus to agree to rule changes that would vastly limit their power moving forward. Specifically, he wants to eliminate their ability to oust a sitting speaker by making a motion to, quote, vacate the chair. And that's where the Freedom Caucus gets a lot of their clout and a lot of their juice. Now, here's the thing that has kind of flummoxed me about the these are 40 people. What is it, 280 some odd Republicans in, in the House? 40 people. 40. Congressional Black Caucus has at least 40. Congressional Hispanic Caucus got another substantial number. The Progressive Caucus has a substantial number. Of course, they all overlap a little bit. But you have to ask yourself. And, and by the way, I, I take a great deal of pleasure in all this chaos that's going on in the Republican Party. But you have to ask yourself, how come a larger number of Democrats who would be like-minded on most issues, was how come they weren't able, with a couple of exceptions, to wield more clout when the Democrats had control of the House, for God's sake? I don't understand. It, it, it's, it's perplexing to me that 40 people, 40, and by the way, that's what they're there for, this Freedom Caucus. They can talk all that shrinking government crap they want, but that's what they're there for. They want power. And all these Republican-based voters who are outraged at career politicians, they got to look at that first, because that's what these clowns want. Yeah, they ain't talking about tying cuts to Medicaid. They know that's not going to work. They know and they don't care. 
because they are the da, 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 Freedom Caucus. How wonderful. It may be a, a difficult road to the speakership for Paul Ryan unless the rest of the Republicans in the House get the Freedom Caucus people in the room and say, yo, shut up and stop this foolishness. I don't think it's going to happen. I just don't think it's going to happen. I think that they are so afraid of these people. 40 members. But they're so afraid. And so afraid that if they alienate this Freedom Caucus, they'll alienate the caucus's constituents, who I guess they think represent the majority thinking of the Republican Party. You know, I, I it's beyond me. It is utterly beyond me. But, I mean, the, the Freedom Caucus did, in fact, respond and react to Paul Ryan's demands. Many of them are publicly rejecting it already. Rejecting the list of demands. Because, why? Because of a philosophical difference? Or because it will dilute their power? That's what this is about. Power. And Democrats and Republicans would do well to remember that. And when I say Democrats and Republicans, I'm not talking about politicians. They know this already. Voters would do well to understand that this is about power. Pure and simple. I mentioned earlier that there are a group of law enforcement people, prosecutors, sheriffs, police chiefs, etc., who are now taking on the issue of over-incarceration. And incarceration for, I can't say, I, I could say it, but I'm not going to. But incarceration for bull, how about that? Well, there's a town in Mississippi, I guess Biloxi, Mississippi, where they will lock you up and keep you in jail over paltry amounts of money. In essence, setting up a debtor's prison, which is technically illegal. Story talks about a single mother, and actually she's suing. She was in prison for not paying $400 in court fees. Court fees! Her name is Kamotria Kennedy, single mother with teenage kids from Biloxi. She was driving around with a friend when they were pulled over for allegedly running a stop sign. Kennedy wasn't even driving, but her name was put through a police database that flashed up a warrant for her arrest on charges she failed to pay $400 in court fees or court fines. I'm sorry. The fines were for other traffic violations going back two years. At the time, Kennedy says she told her probation officers who were from a private company called Judicial Corrections Services, Inc., that she was so poor there was no way she could find the money. She earns less than $9,000 a year, well below the poverty level, for one person, let alone three. A JCS official told her unless she paid her fines in full, as well as a $40 monthly fee to JCS, that would be $40 a month 
Let me see. Forty times twelve? That's a lot of money. It's better than four hundred bucks a year for the privilege of having JCS as her probation officers. And they told her she didn't pay up, she'd go to jail. An arrest warrant was secured through the Biloxi Municipal Court. This woman's inability to pay her fines because she was poor wasn't taken into account by the police officer when he stopped her. Discovering the arrest warrant, he promptly put her in handcuffs. And by the way, by the time she got to jail, the figure had gone from 400 bucks to a grand because JCS had been charging her by the month. She spent five days and nights in a holding cell. She apparently, according to what she told the guardian, she was put in a cell with a woman who had stabbed her husband. <laughs> so you can imagine. And for the first three days, they wouldn't even tell her where her, uh, wouldn't even tell her kids where she was. So she, long story short, is the lead plaintiff in a class action lawsuit that was lodged on Wednesday with a federal district court in Gulfport, Mississippi, against the city of Biloxi, its police department, the municipal court system, and that private probation company, JCS. The filing was drawn up by the ACLU, just in case you think, you know, there's no need for the ACLU. And it claims that the agencies collectively conspired to create a modern form of debtor's prison as a ruse to extract cash from those least able to afford it, the city's poor. Now, this lady, thank goodness, has taken legal action. Biloxi's not the only municipality where this kind of crap goes on. The court filing, Kennedy versus City of Biloxi, discloses that between September 2014 and March this year, at least 450, I'm sorry, 415 415. People were put in jail under warrants charging them with failure to pay fines owed to the city. According to court records, none, none, not one of these 415 people had the money available when they were locked up. It's amazing. It is amazing. One guy spent 30 days in jail for failure to pay fines for misdemeanor that mainly related to the fact he had no money and he was homeless. Uh, This is amazing. Now, debtor's prisons were abolished in the United States almost two centuries ago. The informal practice of incarcerating people who cannot pay fines and fees was also explicitly outlawed by the Supreme Court in 1983 in a ruling that stated that to punish an individual for their poverty was a violation of the 14th Amendment. That, of course, ensures, among other things, equal protection under the law. And it's like people, these towns and cities, and again, it's not just Biloxi, they are ignoring the law. It is as simple as that. They are ignoring the law and locking people up. Now, one guy died in the Detroit jail, 16 days into a 30-day sentence for failure to pay a $772 fine for careless driving. He couldn't afford it. 
little bits of money. In the 2015 budget, all right, it's a town of 44,000 people. It was $1.27 million. This is the money they raised by, by scaring people into paying fines. 1.27. In the 2015-16 budget, it had risen to $1.45 million. Yet the census data from the American Community Survey shows that the percentage of Biloxi's population that lives below the federal poverty line doubled between 2009 and 2013 from 13% to 28%. And by the way, uh, apparently JCS no longer functions in uh, Mississippi, moved out of the state. But, you know, the ACLU five years ago exposed similar practices in Georgia, Louisiana, Michigan, Ohio, and Washington. Georgia and Washington were both sued this year. This is something that needs to stop. Stop right away. As mentioned, and Harriet mentioned it too, Joe Biden is not going to run for president. You know, I knew before he even said a word, when I saw him with the president standing next to him, I knew he wasn't running. The president couldn't stand next to Joe Biden and Joe Biden said, yeah, I'm making a run because that would look like Obama was endorsing him. So I knew he wasn't running. According to a spokesman, Vice President Biden made the decision last night. He still positions himself as a defender of the Obama legacy. Uh, his speech defended democratic values. There's nothing wrong with that. And he also, without naming her, sent a warning to Hillary Clinton. Uh, apparently rebuking her for her comment in last week's Democratic debate, the Republicans were her enemies. Quote, I believe that we have to end the divisive partisan politics that is ripping this country apart, and I think we can. It's mean-spirited, it's petty, and it's gone on for much too long. I don't believe, like some do, that it's naive to talk to Republicans. I don't think we should look at Republicans as our enemies. They are our opposition. They're not our enemies. Okay. End quote, by the way, from Joe Biden. So he's out of the race. Jim Webb is out of the race. So it's really now down to a head-to-head between Hillary and Bernie. And Hillary goes on Capitol Hill tomorrow to talk about Benghazi again. But the Benghazi committee, the select committee on Benghazi, they've eroded all their credibility. And I do mean all of their credibility because they've said publicly, one of them, McCarthy, the guy that would have been speaker, he said, hey, this is about going after Hillary. What a mess, what a mess, what a mess. I did, I'm not going to get a chance to talk about the Democrats plotting a takeover of the House in 2016. It's good to hear they're trying. I hope they can do it. Time for me to get out of here. My thanks to Jason Taubenfeld and all the good people at the Progressive Radio Network. We thank you for giving me this opportunity 
to vent my spleen for an hour. We'll be back next Wednesday, 6 p.m., God willing, in the creek, don't rise. For the Mark Riley Show, I am Mark Riley. Have yourselves a great rest of the evening and a better week ahead.